Peace be with you. We are uh, still tracking through the book of Ecclesiastes, so if you want to open your Bible up, if you brought one, turn there. We're going to look at the end of chapter 1. Turn on your Bible if that's what you like to do. Welcome to week 2 of this wisdom series. We are looking at trying to be wise people, learning to live skillfully, I guess is one way you could say it. Learning to live skillfully in a broken world. While, I mean, as Christians, the church, we think of that as we're, we're trying to be um, skillful people while we wait for the Lord's return, while we wait in faith. Um, the, so this wisdom we're acquiring comes from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, one of our wonderful uh, wisdom books in the Bible. Um, and so we're going to pick up um, in chapter 1, verse 12, where I left off last week. It's quite a bit of a reading here, so just stick with me. Uh, try to follow along. And I would encourage you, please, please, uh, do what you can to get into this book, like read it weekly. It's actually quite short. Um, it's right in the middle of the Bible. Some of you may not even be familiar with it, so you have to use your table of contents to find it. That's okay. That makes sense. Um, but it's actually a really short read, although it's very dense. And I would just, the more you get familiar with it, the more you'll get out of our series throughout the summer, truly. So I would encourage you to kind of make that a commitment. I'm just going to read this uh, once a week or whatever it is. So, okay, let's go. Let's, let's pick up where we left off. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesi- excuse me, chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 12. Here's, um, we're reading this as if Solomon himself is preaching and teaching to us, King Solomon. So here's what he says. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out my wisdom All that is done under heaven. This is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Did he just liken God to a disengaged substitute teacher that gives us busy work? Yes. Isn't that fascinating? I have been, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. There's that word hevel, vapor, breath, smoke. It's all smoke. And a striving after the wind, just trying to make sense of it all, right? What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I've I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is this? (laughs) I searched with my aura how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven. And during the few days of their life, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. It's like he's creating Eden, isn't it? The language is so reminiscent of Genesis 1 and 2. 
Made my, or, so I bought, my, uh, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I, I, I had also uh, great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. First uh, Kings says 300. The delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. It was a hevel, just hevel. And a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so I turned and considered wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man uh, do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And th- then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person, the wise person at least has eyes in his head. But the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that is, that's also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all this vanity, striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or, or be, be wise or be a fool. Yet he will be master for all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Over, um, over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. It's hevel. It's just, it's just futile and pointless. There is nothing better, he says, nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. What? This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. You guys all right? You okay? You did it. You did it. You got through it. It's a lot. It is depressing. Are you okay? You want to take a bathroom break or go get a cup of coffee? I know. As much as the, Here's the thing. Look, I love this chapter. And here's why. As much as it's dark, it seems dark and brooding. It is dark and brooding. 
You know, he keeps trying things, and he's just like, it's pointless. Um, so even though it, it does come off, it's like this nearly hopeless perspective. Paradoxically, and this is great, paradoxically, um, it's the seemingly dark approach of Ecclesiastes that really lightens your mood. Just stay with me. I promise you, it really does. It can calm you, relax you, cheer you even. It's, it's, it's a very strange paradox, I get it. But the more you study it, the more you find yourself relaxing into God's sovereignty, even learning to enjoy yourself more. Yeah, this particular section can teach you the wisdom of gratitude. I actually think if you're grasping what he's doing in chapter 1 through 2, and, and, and really the rest of the book, but he's really teaching you how to become an incredibly grateful person, just full of gratitude. Gratitude that's really accessible, like it bubbles up like the way it does in children. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? Like my kids, like my kid gets rewards for doing chores or something like that, and I'll, you know, and I'll be like, hey, I'm going to give you something killer. And she'll be like, what? And I'll be like, I'm going to go get you a blizzard from Dairy Queen. And she's like, amazing. You know, it's she, her head pops off. Like she thinks... You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I can take my kids and say, you could, I, I'm going to have a great day. And I can say, you know what, I'm in such a good mood. I will take you wherever you want to go eat. And she'll be like, wherever? And I'm like, wherever? And she'll be like, Wendy's. And I'm like, okay. You know, so this is this, they get, I mean, sure, you, you could say, well, they have low brow, like poor taste. Okay. Uh, that's kind of true. That's kids. Uh, but, but have you ever been around an adult that's not like, like lowbrow, like bad taste, but has the same accessibility to gratitude? You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever been with an adult, like a friend of yours or something? You could sit with them over a crappy cup of coffee, and they're like, and you're like realizing this is a really crappy cup of coffee, and they're going, oh man, thank God for coffee. You know, or like you ever been with somebody um, that just finds like you're out to dinner with them um, at a restaurant or something. And it's just a mediocre restaurant. You know, I want to I want to name some, but I don't want to insult anybody. So I'll just leave that alone. Um, So you're at a mediocre restaurant and they're like pointedly and very directly talking to the server like, thank you. You've done an excellent job. And you're like, this was just a very normal you're, you're, you know, and now, if you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, it's kind of, I'm kind of like that. No, you're not. No, you're not. The fact that you're thinking it, the fact, trust me, I know how this works. The fact that you're thinking that you might be that person means you're definitely not that person. Because these kind of people don't realize they're doing it. You know, like they just kind of exude this gratitude in the everyday, the mundane, the trivial. And so, I, here's the thing I want to be that way. I really want to be that way. And I, and I think you want to be that way, and, and there's good reason for that, because I think that's actually Christian maturity. You understand what I'm saying? Like, that is the Jesus way of living out life under the sun. Like, life is hard, it's broken, for sure, but there's a way in which we can exude gratitude, and I think that's what Jesus wants for us. I think, it's a, I think that should be the aim of anyone who wants to be a disciple, an, an actual disciple of Jesus. First um, Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the, what? the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's what he wants for you. Like, God is not raising up cynics and pessimists. Get it straight. He's not. But he's also not raising up people to be naive, thinking that somehow the world's just great. No, it's not. It's broken. 
But there's a space in between that you need to learn to be in and traffic in, which is awareness of the brokenness while at the same time finding the good things to be grateful for. And we're not always good at that. So the preacher here, he's teaching you how to do it in a very indirect way. The preacher has, uh, so he's been doing this life experiment. Did you catch that at the beginning? Um, He's kicking the tires, you know, on all sorts of things in life. He's trying out all this stuff, and, 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 and he's, he's trying to find the thing, you know, the thing that really lasts, that really, like, gets him going, um, the thing that sticks inside of him and brings fulfillment to the bottom. And so he, he looks at wisdom itself, and, and he is incredibly wise, but he's like, well, but he realizes the thing about wisdom, no matter how much you develop and you learn, you, you can't escape the reality of pain and sorrow, you know? Like, you can fix your roof, but you can't always fix a relationship. You know, like, some things in life are worth crying over, and they can't be fixed by you or by me. And so, he looks at that, um, and, 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 and so, you know, it's, it's this whole paradox for him. Um, uh, the paradox is the more you learn, the more you end up hurting somehow. Because I think what he means is, is you realize the more you grow in wisdom, the more you learn, which is a good thing, by the way, but the more you do, the more you learn how truly weak and vulnerable and unable you are to fix things. And that hurts. And so then he takes this very modern approach, if you caught it, which I'm sure you did. Um, and it's an approach you and I should really relate to as modern people. He, he goes into this kind of intense consumerism, doesn't he? It's wild what he does. I mean, he just goes after everything. What's he looking for? As you, as you read, like, what, remember, bear in mind, what is the preacher, the experimenter? He's like an, an empiricist. He's like a theologian mixed with an empiricist. He is observing what is, and he's studying it, and he's chronicling it for you, for your benefit. And he goes into this kind of intense uh, consumerism and workaholism even, and he's looking for what? He's looking for pleasure. He's looking for the same thing you're looking for, joy, but like ultimate lasting joy, like fulfillment to the bottom, the kind of pleasure that fills him up and sticks around. So what's he do? I'll just list them really quickly so we don't have to go through it all because it was a long section. He parties and goes to comedy clubs, right? That's what he does. He fills his life up with silliness and jokes. Then he numbs himself over with alcohol. He keeps his heart within him. He's he's like, my heart's still being guided by wisdom, so I don't think he's getting hammered every night. But I do think he's like, I'm going to become a connoisseur. I'm going to try that on. he, He throws himself into work and talent, like his own talents. And this guy builds incredible palaces. It's unbelievable what he builds. It's historically, we know that. We can study it in, the, in other parts of the Bible. He, he builds uh, community parks and cultivates a life of, he surrounds himself kind of with a life of horticulture, you know, planting all these trees. He builds a workforce the size no one has ever seen, right? I mean, this is, it's, it's unbelievable what this guy accomplishes. He becomes incredibly rich, owning more than any king who came before him or who would come after him. The queen of Sheba, we, we can read, um, hears about this guy and everything he's doing, how much he knows, how much he's building, and she's like, i got to see it for myself, queen of Sheba. She goes and visits him, and, and you can read about this in First Kings, First Kings 10, and she's like, man, I, I heard, and half of it wasn't told me. This is ridiculous. She's astonished by what she witnesses. And you can read about how much 
This guy has. You start, just go to 1 Kings 4 and start reading. And you will be astounded by how much money and possessions, and sadly, even how many wives. I mean, the guy has 700 wives. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, by the way, the Bible does not approve of that. It's just what he did. I mean, this guy had more. He consumed more than you could ever imagine. And he learns and he learns and he learns. And he learns more than anyone could ever dream. And so he thinks, well, maybe ultimate pleasure and contentment is just being wise. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not so much consuming all this stuff, but it's just being really, really skillful in navigating life. And he compares that to foolishness. But, but he, he says, because he knows this, he says, let's face it, this is verse 13, there is more gain in wisdom than folly. Like, it's practically, it's better to be wise than a fool. There's more gain in light than there is in darkness. That being said, though, right, none of it adds up for him, does it? It doesn't add up. It, not the way he hoped. It all amounts to hevel. It's all hevel. It's all smoke. It's fleeting. It's unpredictable. It's absurd when I try to grasp it and hold on to it, make it stick. So does this mean he had no fun at all? Ask yourself. Does it mean that he had no fun? Am I willing to give it a shot? Answer it. No, he did. He says it in verse 10. Um, I kept my heart from no pleasure. Like I just, I threw myself into everything I could. And for my, my heart found pleasure in my toil. But this is what he says. And this was the reward. You see what he's doing there? In other words, there was fun in the work. There was fun in the laughing and the building and all of it. But it was fleeting. Like the reward for the work was the work itself. The reward for the party, the Friday night, was just the Friday night itself. It, there was still a Saturday morning hangover I had to deal with. But what I got in the moment was what I got in the moment. You okay? It's, I get it. It's like you really got to think when you get into this book. But he's still frustrated down deep, right? Because there's nothing he could do in his own power to control it. Nothing he could do to keep it from being fleeting and leaving him. It's like he couldn't keep it from being a pleasure that's only temporary. You understand what I'm saying? It's like you're looking at the sunset and you're like, wow, it's beautiful. And it takes your breath away. And you see it sinking and you're like, stay. And you can't, no matter what you try to do. You do not have the power to hold it. It's, it's there, and then it's gone. And you don't know what to do about it. That's how he's looking at life and experiencing it. You know, no matter how much pleasure he, he gets after, he runs after it all, there's always a shadow looming. Do you see that? Did you, did you notice? Did you catch what the shadow is for him? There's a shadow figure always looming behind everything, whether it's the party, the buildings, the, the sex, the money, there's always a shadow. Did you notice what the shadow was? Death. It's death. Verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, yet, right? Yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happens to me. Why, why, am, I, why am I doing this? Right? 
this is silly. Because for as the wise and as the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. What's the point, man? What's the point? Because you know what? The reality is I'm going to die. I, it, it, there can't be anything permanent and lasting, pleasure-wise, because in the end, I die. I know it. It's just there. Death, he realizes, is that ultimate trump card. It's that ultimate reminder that you're far more compromised and vulnerable than you like to actually think about. Death is the ultimate pointer that you're not God. It's the ultimate pointer to that. There's other things that should point you to that, but death is the ultimate pointer to that. You're not God. You're a human being, made in his image, but you're frail. There's nothing you can do about that. There's no amount of work or wisdom that you can ever achieve that will change the reality that you are east of Eden. Nothing. And that's what he's wrestling with. That's what he hates about life. He won't say it directly, but he hates the fact that we got cast out of the garden. He hates it. And remember, he's looking to secure up ultimate pleasure, ultimate fulfillment. But death is this thing that stands in the way of that. It's like toys are cool, but every time he picks a toy up, he's reminded of a skull, as one writer says. Every time. Uh, 17th century uh, theologian and philosopher and mathematician, a really smart guy named Blaise Pascal, uh, he said this, quote, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is wise because he's thinking about it. He wants to face it. He's not distracting himself from the obvious shadow that hangs over us all. There's no escaping death under the sun. And that frustrates him to no end, right? Like he says it. He says, I hated life. I hated life. And then he revisits his question. Verse 22, what is man from all the toil? What is that man from all the toil and striving of a heart in which he toils beneath the sun? That's the same question he's been asking over and over again. For all his days are full of sorrow uh, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, he's tossing and turning, right? There's no rest. It's all vanity. It's all hevel. We work and we work and we learn and we learn. And you cannot keep enjoyment permanent, can you? The rain clouds eventually come. The sickness will still find you no matter how much you try. The Friday night always has a hangover. And the life you live now always will have a death at some point. There's nothing you can do about that. I know it's depressing. (laughs) You're like, why did I come to church today? But here's the thing. He surprises. He surprises you with this really unexpected prescription after coming to that conclusion. Did you catch it? Because he doesn't say just give yourself over to despair. In other words, he doesn't cast you into this brooding, depressed mood to then say, you know, after thinking about all of this, I think you should just give yourself over to depression and despair. No, no, actually, he says he tried it. Did you see that? He actually gave himself over to despair. And he looks at his own depression. He goes, this is a waste of time too. (laughs) 
Even despair is a waste of time. And then he says this, he says 24. This is basically what he's concluding. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. (laughs) This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, and by the sinner, he just means somebody's living apart from God. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. Just toil, 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 toil. A Sisyphean kind of life. Just roll the boulder up, do it again. Only to give his rewards, right, to the one who pleases God. This is vanity and striving after him. He's like, I don't get it, but this is what I see. And this is where you should slam the brakes on and go, what in the world is this guy saying? Is he confused? Like, is he schizophrenic? Like, which is it, preacher? Not me, but him, this preacher. Which is it, man? What, one minute, one minute, you're, one second, you're, you're analyzing life and you say it's all full of sorrow and vexation. That's what he said. Like, your whole life is just full of sorrow and vexation. You're like, I think I'll read another book now. Right? But then, then immediately after, then you're saying, oh, there's nothing better for you to do than find enjoyment in this life. Well, like, which is it, man? You can't have it both ways. Which is it, preacher? Which is it? This isn't a one-off thing he does, by the way. Seven times in the book he does this strange, contradictory statement. Seven times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he brings up this paradoxical reality of both how life is full of sorrow and pain and suffering, and you should really enjoy yourself. What is his point? Is life about sorrow, or is life about seeking pleasure? Well, here's the thing. Um, It's kind of like this. One informs the other. That's what he's doing. It's brilliant. Um, For the preacher, he, he sees, he looks at his own life, and he's now, of course, he's, he looks at your life, and he sees a paradox in the, in the way that we typically live it. He sees a paradox in our effort to find pleasure and secure up lasting fulfillment. It's like this, the more, the more you see pleasure as something you go and strive for, which is what you and I do, like, think about it, right? We work for our retirement. We date to get married. Like, we plan for the party next week. The human being is always pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. For what? For boredom? What's your plan? No, you plan and you work and you plot for pleasure. You think it's there. Pleasure's over there. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. He's looking at that. He notices that about life. And he sees that in in me. He sees that in you. We're always trying to strive for more. And the more that we make it about our striving, the more it eludes you. It escapes you. You actually never get there. The more it actually leaves you frustrated and disappointed. You see, the more you try to control, or, or let me say it this way, the more you think you can control the outcomes of your life and find enjoyment in it, the more paradoxically you miss the enjoyment along the way. You understand what I'm saying? You see, he knows something about the human condition. We're prone to this delusional process in our heads that if we plan well enough, work hard enough, plot 
enough, learn enough, strive enough, will secure up this deep and lasting pleasure. But he thinks that's paradoxically foolish. He thinks that's actually a very foolish way to live your life. We don't control our destiny. We're way too compromised in this broken world under the sun. That's what he's talking about, remember. And it's foolish because we miss the present enjoyment right under our nose. It's fleeting, yes. He would admit that. The pleasure you can get is fleeting. But it's there, and you end up missing it. There's, again, I'll go to Blaise Pascal because he says this. It's utterly brilliant. What he, he, he's on to it perfectly. This is what he says. We do not rest satisfied with the present. We anticipate the future as too slow in coming, as if in order to hasten its course. Or we recall the past to stop its too rapid flight. You know, come back, come back. So imprudent are we that we dream of those times which are no more and thoughtlessly overlook that which alone exists. For the present is generally painful to us. We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us. And if it be delightful to us, we regret to see it pass away. We try to sustain it by the future and think of rearranging matters which are not in our power for a time which we have no certainty of ever even reaching. It's so good. This good. Let each one examine his thoughts, and he will find them all occupied with the past or the future. You only think about where you're going. You don't think about where you are. Seldom. We scarcely ever think of the present. And if we think of it, it is only to take light from it to arrange the future. The present is never our end. So we never live. But we hope to live. And as we are always preparing to be happy, it is inevitable we should never be so. That's good, isn't it? Do you see what these guys are saying? We have this tendency to thoughtlessly overlook so many realities around us in the present because we are so preoccupied with our plans for our future. We are, the more you are in your future all the time, the more you are never present. Like right now, some of you probably are thinking about what you need to do today, which is why you're not hearing a word I'm saying. You know what I mean? That's okay. I'm not mad at you. We all do it. But you do it at the dinner table. You know what I mean? You do it with your kids. And you do it with God. We do it all the time. It's not, the, the fact that we want pleasure is not a bad thing. He, he never condemns pleasure. You just think it's out there somewhere. And then the funny, strange, paradoxical thing, the tragic irony of it is, is when you get to the very place that you're planning for, once you get there, you're planning and plotting a new place. It's endless. Keeps going over and over and over again. Let me illustrate how this works uh, in a very trivial kind of way. Uh, uh, back in um, March, I was taking time off, and I was gonna I wanted to get away. Pastor Barry was like, "Hey, man, I, I got these friends that kind of have some money, and they they've got this really, really wonderful big piece of property out in Montana. I've contacted them for you." And they've welcomed you to come out and stay in. They've got a few cabins on kind of a, a big yard, as in 100, 
like 100,000 acres, <laughs> um, out in Montana. And so I'm like, yeah, sign me up. I'll do that. So I, I, I flew out to Montana. Um, and so in the Bitterroot Valley, unbelievably beautiful. Unbelievably beautiful. And I'm by myself. And so I, I was plotting and planning. And I'm like, that's what I'm going to do, man. I'm, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to get into this cabin. I'm going to gear up. I'm going to head out, hike up some of these really big mountains and meet with God. That's what I'm going to do. Unbelievable. I get out there. It is stunningly beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. I gear up. I, I, I plan. I find a, a, a mountain that I want to do. And, and um, so I head out that way. It's about a two-hour drive-ish from my cabin. Um, I'm kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I, as I drive there, I get to the, it, it, as I near the, the, the mountain pass itself, it, it kind of changes from pavement, you know, to gravel and then gravel to dirt. And it gets narrower and narrower and steeper and steeper. And, you know, the thing about, you know, elevation in the mountains, as many as you, I'm sure maybe all of you know, that it might be 75 and sunny down in the valley, but up in the mountains, it might be three feet of snow. Like, you need to be paying attention to that sort of a thing. And so as I'm driving up this windy, you know, dirt road, that's getting rather steep, uh, it starts turning into snow. And you probably know where this is headed. <laughs> uh, but I also was brilliant in that I rented a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> and uh, didn't really think that one through. And hey, man, if you've got a Toyota Corolla, I'm not knocking your car. It's just not a Western Montana kind of car. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I'm, I'm coming up this, and I'm starting to get uneasy, you know? I'm starting to realize this might be a foolish thing for me to do because it's getting deeper and deeper, colder and colder. At this point, the snow is dumping down on me. And it's a narrow enough mountain pass that, like, I can't turn around. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it is narrow. <laughs> and so I'm going and going, and then I'm thinking, I don't know. And so I stop, right? And I'm like, what, should, I don't, what do I do, right? What would you do? <laughs> you know, if I keep going, it could get worse. But, like, I'm, I'm looking around. I'm like, if I, if I do a, I'm going to be like, to turn this car around. Like, so I, I, I'm thinking about it, and then I'm like, ah, I don't know. Maybe I'll keep driving and find a place where I can turn around, right? I throw it in drive, and I am stuck. <laughs> stuck. There is no forward. There is no backward. There is nothing. There is me. <laughs> Uh, a little lunch I packed, you know, up at the side of a mountain. And I'm like, what? So I, after I sulked a bit, I sat on the side of, uh, of this, like, roadside. I, I sulked about it. Well, what else am I going to do? What are my options? I, I can make a, like, 911 call, you know, or I can start walking for hours and hours and hours and hours, or I can start digging. So I started digging. And I, do, I just got, a, I literally crawled underneath a Toyota Corolla and I just start digging with my hands. All the snow I could, I went to the mountainside, I grabbed as much dirt and sand that I could, and I just kept dumping it under this car. And thankfully, the good thing about Toyota Corollas, they don't weigh a ton, so I was able to kind of like rock this car and I got it out. I did, I got it out. And then I buckled in and opened the door, leaned out and back and reversed it down this mountain pass. <laughs> I know. I don't recommend this. Don't try this at home, kids. And um, then drove the two hours back to the cabin. It was an entire day. Driving, getting stuck, digging, 
than driving back. I was brooding the entire day. Like I flew all the way out here for this. In the midst of sitting, literally in a chair staring out the window, it dawned on me finally. I thought to myself, what is your problem? Why are you brooding? So, I mean, just, this is just, you, you are like stuck in this like bitter, and it's obvious in one sense, right? You're, it's like, well, yeah, because I had this plan. And then yet, it got demolished and ruined, and I, I, I'm not going to get the very thing that I thought I really needed. And yet, here I am sitting in this chair staring out the window at the Bitterroot Valley, and it's absolutely breathtaking, and I'm ignoring it because I'd rather pay attention to my own little bitterness. You understand? We do this all the time. I was so caught up in where I thought I needed to be to find pleasure, I was at risk at missing the pleasure that was being offered to me right and now. And God was there, and he was meeting with me, and he did. And I can tell you, for the most part, I didn't move. For the next four or five days, I sat in the same chair and sat off the same window, and I met with God. Not how I expected it to go down, but that's how it was, and it was beautiful. Now, you might hear that story, and you might think, well, that's great, but that's just positive thinking. It's learning to see the sunny side, right? That's not exactly what I mean. No, please. I'm talking about learning to embrace um, your humanity. I'm talking about learning to see pleasure, joy, fulfillment as something that comes not from your striving, your planning, or your plotting, but from God's giving. And there's a radically big difference. I'm not, this is not a sermon like carpe diem, because that's how you might think of it. You're going to go home and be like, basically, Pastor Matt said carpe diem. No, I didn't. I said coram dio. Carpe diem is seize the day. It's about you. You make the most of it. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible's saying. I'm saying coram dio, always in the presence of God. You're always in the presence of God. You're always in his miraculous theater. Where is he? Do you notice? There is a giant difference in those two kinds of lifestyles. Talking about learning to see it pleasure that comes from God's giving, not my striving. Verse 25, he says, from apart from him, he's talking about God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, God is the source of all enjoyment, whether we see him there or not, whether you want to recognize that or not, he is the ultimate source of all enjoyment. The more we think that enjoyment is the result of our hard work or great planning, the more we find ourselves so daggone entitled. Do you see that? You, the reason why you get bitter and frustrated is you think you're entitled and you think you're in to it and you're, you feel entitled to it because you think all your pleasure comes from you working. It's from you, you, you. Life isn't a gift. Life and the pleasures that are in it are something you're entitled to because you're working so hard. There's a big shift that the preacher wants us to make. Make your life about securing up lasting enjoyment for the sake of enjoyment around you and your own um, work and effort, and you will find that it eludes you. It'll just, you'll just move on to the next plan, the next plot. You will, the newly evolved future that you've been preoccupied with, make your life about God, and you'll see that the unexpected pleasures along the way as just gifts, gifts that always conjure up what? Gratitude. Gratitude, because you are not entitled to anything. You understand? Does this teaching, do you recognize this teaching anywhere? In the New Testament? Isn't this Jesus? Isn't this what he's, doesn't Jesus urge us into this kind of life? Matthew 6. 
Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things get added in. It's the same teaching. The preacher didn't have a line of sight on Christ. That's to be fair. You do. So the preacher is on, you know, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, he's on to the problem that Jesus is giving you the solution to. We fight for controlling our future on our own terms apart from God. We want so desperately to be something other than what we are, frail human beings. This is the garden. You're, you and I, and our lack of attentiveness to the present, are doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. They tried to shed their humanity. They tried to be omniscient, omnipresent. You see what I'm saying? They weren't, they weren't comfortable with the fact that they were people with limitations. They wanted to escape those limitations because they thought a God that puts limitations on you is not a God that has your best interest in mind. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, trust me, your limitations are not a problem for you. Your problem is your lack of trust in your father. That's your problem. Trust him more, and you recognize your limitations are ultimately not your problem. You can embrace them. You can live in them. The fact that we cannot control things creates in us this delusional kind of anxious toil, always just working harder, and Jesus wants to free you from that. The good news of the gospel is not this news that says, thanks be to God that Jesus eliminated our humanity. (laughs) Thanks be to God that Jesus eliminated our frailty or that he has given us superhuman powers to control things. He hasn't. No, the news of the gospel is this news that he's saying he's given you a peace with God and a peace to embrace your limitations in the here and now. It's Jesus that announces, I know you want fulfillment. I know you want joy. I know you want pleasure, but it's ultimately not found here under the sun. It's found in me and my coming kingdom. But in the meantime, Right? In the meantime, as we live in this broken, compromised world, if Jesus is our ultimate pleasure, if He's our ultimate plan, then the daily bread along the way is simply a bonus. You see that. When we pray it every week, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Give us what? Our daily bread. Learn to see it as a gift. Even just the normal meals you eat, it's all a gift. We don't need to escape our humanity or cling to something other than that. We don't try to control our pleasure. We just receive it and give thanks. We're not entitled to nothing. It's just fleeting. That's part of how it works. So as we come to the Lord's table, here's what I want us to consider. Your life is not about, as you come to the wine and the bread, your life is not about where you're going or what you're getting. None of that. It's about seeking God today. What if your daily goal, think of it this way. Here's a practice for you. And I want you to consider this as you, before you take part in communion this morning. What if every day for you, you woke up and your mind wasn't flooded with your tasks and your goals? Think about it. Think about it. What if that's not what you were thinking about? What if your mind was not thinking about how can I complete all these things and find pleasure and how, and how can I consume everything that I possibly can in the next 24 hours for my own enjoyment? But instead, what if... Every morning you got up and your first thought that flooded your mind was, where is God today? Where is he? Where is Christ speaking? Where is he leading, encouraging me? 
That doesn't mean that you wouldn't or you shouldn't laugh, eat, or be moved by earth's beauty or pleasures. Hear me. No, no. What's surprising is is you might find yourself enjoying these trivial pleasures more because you recognize God's in them. God isn't the cup of coffee, but he is in the cup of coffee. In the sense that when you drink it and you enjoy it, you think, God, thank you for this. I'm entitled to none of this. None of it. You're holding me together. You're putting breath into my lungs. Every good and perfect gift that you enjoy is from where? Heaven. It's from the Lord. I encourage you as you take part in Christ's body and Christ's blood this morning to think what it means for you to start to live in such a way where you recognize all of life is a gift. If, if it's all a gift, you become full of gratitude. You exude it. It just comes out naturally. That's my hope. That's my encouragement. Keep reading Ecclesiastes. We'll keep learning as best we can. Let us pray. Father, thank you this morning. We are reminded of what your son has completed as we come to our end here. And it's through his endurance and his perseverance, through the cross, being laid in a tomb, being resurrected, all of it, we have hope. In what seems under the sun a, a very futile and pointless existence at times, we know that because of his work, there is meaning, there is purpose, but it's only found in Jesus, and it's not found in our achievements, it's not found in our earthly pleasures. You don't condemn these things, but you just say, don't cling to them. Don't think that this is where we, you will find fulfillment. So God, teach us to see all of life as a gift. Teach us to, to, to see pleasures, to see our achievements as just gifts from you. Humble us in a way that we can become those kinds of people. We love you. And we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.